0: Hello, all you wild wanderers out there in podcast land. Today, as promised, I'm going to be talking about some of the members of the Mustelid family that I haven't talked about yet. Yet, you're wondering? Have I talked about other members of the Mustelid family in previous episodes? Well, yes. Yes, I have. I just didn't say the word Mustelid before now. Badgers and black-footed ferrets, two of the subjects of episode 55, are members of the mustelid family. And since there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 species of mustelid, there's a real good chance I'm going to talk about more of them in the future. But today, I want to tell you about some of the more common, and arguably one of the most entertaining. If you listened to the last episode, you already know I'm talking about otters. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. In general, members of the mustelid family display some common characteristics. They're typically smaller animals with elongated bodies, short legs, short skulls, short round ears, and thick fur. They're carnivores. Most are solitary, many are nocturnal, and they tend to be active year-round. Reproduction in most mustelids involves what's called embryonic diapause, or delayed implantation. The embryo doesn't immediately implant into the uterus but remains dormant for a period of time. Development doesn't start until the embryo attaches to the uterine lining. What this means is that the normal gestation period is extended, sometimes up to a year. Now the reason for embryonic diapause is that it allows the young to be born when environmental conditions are more favorable Any mother can tell you that growing babies uses up a lot of energy, so it's to the mother's benefit, not to mention the young, to have plentiful food and mild weather when the babies arrive. But let's focus in on otters specifically. There's two species native to North America that I want to talk about today, sea otters and North American river otters. Now... In researching for this episode, I quickly discovered that, for whatever reason, there's a lot of specific terms for otter stuff. For example, an otter's den is called a holt, spelled H-O-L-T, or a couch. Why? I don't know. Terms for male and female otters either mirror those for pigs, boar and sow, or go with more of a canine theme, with a male being called simply a dog and a female being called... (coughs) Sorry a bitch. And young are referred to as pups or cubs. A group of otters can either be called a bevy, a family, a lodge, my personal favorite, a romp because of their playful nature, or particularly for sea otters, a raft for reasons I'll get into shortly. Even their poop, which is described as having, quote, a distinctive odor, unquote, ranging from violets to freshly mowed hay to putrefied fish has its own term. Otter poops are called spraints, which kind of sounds like the name of a cologne, right? Sprint, the new fragrance from Chanel. And let's be honest, a combination of violets, hay, and rotten fish probably smells better than most of the Axe body sprays. Also, spraints would be a great band name, just saying. Of the two species of North America otters, sea otters are the largest. Adults grow to be nearly five feet long and can weigh up to a hundred pounds, making them the heaviest of the mustelids on average, but among the smallest of the marine mammals. On a side note, the giant otter, which is native to South America, is the longest mustelid, ranging around five and a half feet, but they're slimmer than sea otters. Sea otters range along the Pacific coast in North America, as well as Asia, Color-wise, they're usually dark brown with silver-gray speckles, but they can range from a yellowish or grayish brown to nearly black. The head, throat, and chest of adult sea otters are lighter in color than the rest of the body. Now, unlike most other marine mammals, sea otters don't have blubber, so they rely on their exceptionally thick fur in order to keep warm. With up to 970,000 hairs per square inch, sea otters have the densest fur in the animal kingdom. Much like beavers, their coat consists of a short, dense underfur covered by long, waterproof guard hairs, which keep the underfur layer dry. Air is trapped between the underfur and the skin and heated by the body. This keeps the cold water completely away from the skin to help limit heat loss. An otter's fur is thick year-round, and it's shed and replaced gradually as opposed to having a distinct molting season like some other animals. In order to repel water effectively, the guard hairs need to be kept clean, so sea otters have the ability to reach the fur on any part of their body in order to groom it, a task made easier by loose skin and an extremely flexible skeleton. But there's a disadvantage to this kind of insulation. The air layer compresses when the otter dives, reducing both the insulation's effectiveness and the otter's buoyancy in deeper water when they're foraging. Blubber, on the other hand, is efficient at both of these functions. Blubber can also provide energy during deep dives. Now, it's interesting to note in terms of evolution, sea otters returned to the marine environment about three million years ago, which in evolutionary terms is not really all that long. And some biologists believe that, like other marine mammals who have spent a much longer time living in the ocean, sea otters will eventually evolve to be more dependent on blubber for insulation. In addition to their dense fur, sea otters have other adaptations for aquatic living. Their nostrils and ears can close to keep water out when they're diving. The tail is fairly short, thick, slightly flattened, and very muscular. Their front paws are short and have retractable claws, and they have tough pads on their palms that help them get a grip on slippery prey. Along with their front paws, long, highly sensitive whiskers help sea otters find prey by touch when the water is dark or murky. Now, sea otters are very buoyant for two reasons. First, the air trapped in their fur, and second, their lung capacity, which is about two and a half times greater than a similarly sized land mammal. To help balance this out a bit, their bones are exceptionally dense to help them dive. Their back feet, which provide most of their propulsion when swimming, are long, broadly flattened, and fully webbed. The fifth digit on each back foot is the longest, which is great for swimming, even when on your back, but makes walking on land a little bit awkward and difficult. Sea otters walk with a clumsy rolling gait or run in a bounding motion, but in water, they're incredibly graceful. Sea otters propel themselves underwater by moving the rear end of their body, including their tail and hind feet, in an up-and-down motion. By keeping their front legs close to their already streamlined body, they're capable of swimming at speeds up to five and a half miles an hour underwater. At the surface, sea otters lie on their backs and float and move by sculling their feet and tail from side to side. When resting, they'll fold all four limbs onto their torso to help conserve heat. They even sleep this way, often in groups, holding paws so they don't drift apart hence the term raft for a group of sea otters, and yeah, it's adorable. Otters also sometimes float in forests of kelp, and they'll entangle themselves in it to provide anchorage. Rafts of sea otters can number anywhere from 10 individuals up to 1,000. Sea otters hunt in short dives, often to the seafloor. They can hold their breath for up to five minutes, but most dives typically last only about a minute and usually not any longer than four. They're the only marine animal capable of lifting and turning over rocks on the seafloor when foraging and the only marine animal that catches their prey with their paws and not their mouth. They eat sea urchins, crabs, squid, octopuses, clams, mussels, and fish. Sea otters need to eat between 25 and 40 percent of their body weight daily just to fuel their metabolism to stay warm. They gorge on more than 100 different prey species. Sea otters are also one of the few mammals that use tools for foraging and feeding. Under each foreleg, sea otters have a loose pouch of skin that extends across their chest. In this pouch, for whatever reason it's usually the left one, they stash collected food to bring to the surface. They'll also put a rock that they'll use to break open shellfish and clams. The sea otter wedges the rock between its chest and armpit and pounds shells against it to crack them open. Sea otters also hammer rocks against abalone shells to pry them off rocks so they can get to the tasty insides. They'll hammer the abalone shell with a rock hammer at a rate of 45 blows in just 15 seconds. Not easy to do underwater, and if you don't believe me, try hammering a nail into a board with 45 strikes in 15 seconds underwater. Abalone can cling to a rock with a force equal to 4,000 times its own body weight, so releasing it usually requires multiple dives. When they eat sea urchins, which are mostly covered in spines, the sea otter bites through the underside where the spines are shortest, then licks the soft contents out of the urchin shell. Now, as you might imagine, sea otters are preyed on by a number of marine animals, including sharks and killer whales, and I just read a story about a killer whale that was found with five whole sea otters in its stomach and had choked to death on a sixth one. Sea otters give birth in water, the only otter species that does. Ninety-eight percent of the time, a single pup is born, which weighs between three and five pounds. The other two percent of the time, twins are born, but when this happens, usually only one survives. Mothers nurture their young while floating on their backs, holding their infants on their chest to nurse them, and they quickly teach them how to swim and hunt. Sea otter milk is rich in fat and more similar to the milk of other marine mammals than it is to the milk of other mustelids. Nursing can last anywhere from four months to a year, depending on location. Juveniles are typically independent at six to eight months but mortality rate is high in the first year, and it's estimated that only 25% of pups survive. Pups born to experienced mothers have the best survival rates, but if they can survive the first year, sea otters can live over 20 years in the wild. In a recurring theme for this podcast, sea otters very nearly went extinct thanks to humans. Like beavers, the thick waterproof fur of sea otters was in high demand, so they were hunted extensively, once estimated to have a population of over 300,000, by the 1900s, only 1 to 2,000 remained, and they were fully expected to go extinct. Thankfully, with protection from large-scale hunting, their population has rebounded in about two-thirds of their historic range. Now, the biggest threat to sea otters is oil spills. When their fur is soaked with oil, it loses its ability to retain air, and they can quickly die from hypothermia. Not only that, but exposure to oil when grooming causes kidney, liver, and lung damage. The 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill killed thousands of sea otters in Prince William Sound, and lingering oil in the area continued to impact sea otters in this area for decades. Sea otters are listed as an endangered species by the IUCN. Okay, now let's turn our attention to the North American river otter. River otters are smaller than their seafaring cousins, 2.5 to 3.5 feet long, with about a third of that being tail, and weighing on average 18 to 25 pounds. While sea otters are marine mammals that can live their entire lives in the water, river otters are semi aquatic, equally versatile in water and on land. River otters can actually run 15 miles an hour on land. Like other otters, river otters have water-repellent fur to keep them dry and warm, nostrils and ears that close in the water, and long, sensitive whiskers to help them detect prey in the murky water. Nictitating membranes protect their eyes when they're swimming, but make them nearsighted out of the water. Now, despite the name river otter, they're not limited to rivers. River otters can be found in a variety of aquatic habitats, both freshwater and coastal marine, including lakes, rivers, inland wetlands, coastal shorelines, marshes, and estuaries. They're tolerant of a wide range of both temperature and elevation, but since they are semi-aquatic, they are tied to permanent bodies of water. Easy access to a body of water and a steady supply of food are their main requirements. Like their sea otter relatives, river otters have a high metabolism, and they need to eat often. While they're adapted to hunting in water, and fish and crayfish make up a large portion of their diet, their diet is highly variable, and they'll eat almost anything they can get a hold of, including frogs, lizards, turtles, mussels, insects, birds, and small mammals. River otters tend to be more nocturnal and hunt individually or in pairs. They swim by propelling themselves with their powerful tails and webbed feet, in addition to flexing their long bodies. River otters can hold their breath for up to eight minutes, and they remain active all winter long, using holes in the ice to surface and breathe in the colder parts of their range. Now like I mentioned earlier, a river otter's den is called a holt, and otters don't generally dig their own holt, they rely on burrows created by other animals. Usually, the holt will have several tunnels, at least one of which gives direct access to the water. In the early spring, pregnant females find a suitable den where they can give birth. Litter size can be up to five, but normally ranges between one and three. River otter pups weigh only about five ounces at birth. River otter pups are raised by their mother, and she introduces them to the water when they're about two months old and their coat has fully grown in. Pups are usually able to fend for themselves by the time autumn rolls around, but they usually stay close to the family until the following spring before venturing out to establish their own home range. Females tend to disperse farther than males, 35 to 55 miles on average, versus the males 20. But river otters aren't territorial, and newly dispersing males frequently join bevies of other males. River otters communicate with whistles, yelps, growls, and screams, as well as touch and body posture. They also scent mark using their scent glands near the base of their tails that produce a strong musky odor. On a side note, since sea otters live almost exclusively in the water, they don't have these scent glands. But river otters are probably best known for their play. Chasing, wrestling, and sliding down snowy, icy, or even muddy slopes into the water River otters know how to have a good time. Now, it's not just about having fun, although the fact that adult otters engage in these activities suggests that fun is definitely a component. But this type of play serves to strengthen social bonds and also helps young otters practice valuable hunting and survival skills. The lifespan of a river otter in the wild is just eight to nine years, but they can live over 20 years in captivity. Predators of river otters include coyotes, bobcats, alligators, raptors, and other large predators. Now, prior to the arrival of European settlers, river otters were prevalent in aquatic habitats throughout most of the continent. But again, we hear the age-old story. Trapping, loss or degradation of habitats through filling of wetlands, and development of coal, oil, gas, timber, and other industries resulted in local extinctions or at least steep declines in river otter populations in many areas. A study of river otter populations in 1980 determined that they were locally extinct in 11 states and had lost a significant number of their population in nine others. Now, thankfully, when this study was conducted, conservation efforts had already begun. In the 1970s, many wildlife management agencies developed strategies to restore or enhance river otter populations, including reintroduction projects. Since 1976, over 4,000 otters have been reintroduced in 21 U.S. states. All Canadian provinces, with the exception of Prince Edward Island, and 29 U.S. states now have viable populations of river otters. Now, river otters have made headlines, at least here in the U.S., a couple of times in the last few months, but unfortunately not for living their best lives, but rather because of attacks on humans. And in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, a Florida man was bitten 41 times on his legs, hands, and arms by an otter that was later determined to have rabies. In August of this year, three women were attacked by an otter while intertubing on the Jefferson River in Montana. One of the women was injured seriously enough that she needed to be flown by helicopter to the hospital. In this case, it's assumed that the otter was protecting pups. A 2011 review by the IUCN Otter Specialist Group showed that otter attacks reported between 1875 and 2010 occurred most often in Florida. And yeah, my first thought was, of course in Florida, because, well, Florida. But in Florida, both human and otter populations have substantially increased in the last 20 years, making conflict almost inevitable. This review found at least 42 instances of otter attacks, but keep in mind that that's over the course of 135 years, resulting in one recorded death. In about a third of these attacks, the otter was most likely suffering from rabies. So what's my point here? My point is that attacks on humans by otters are rare, but they do happen. And otters, as cute as they are, can be, well, extraordinarily bitey, inflicting a lot of bites in a short period of time. So again, where am I going with this? Well, in order to reduce the potential for human-otter conflict, we need to make sure that we're giving these mustelids space, both in terms of habitats and also when we encounter them in that habitat. Otherwise, we're going to end up hearing more stories like these. Also, the next time you hear someone vilifying coyotes for being, quote, dangerous, unquote, maybe tell them about river otters, you know, just to take some of the pressure off. Okay, one last otter fun fact, although it's not about sea otters or river otters. For many generations, fishermen in southern Bangladesh have bred smooth-coated otters and used them to chase fish into their nets, a tradition that's passed down from father to son and is still practiced in some communities. And on that note, I'll bring this otterly amazing episode to a close. Oh, come on, I needed to work at least one otter pun into the episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to click on those buttons that say like and follow or subscribe. Leave me a comment, too, if you're feeling spunky. I promise it's free. Some other ways you can support the podcast. Tell your friends and family to listen, too. What's that? All your friends and family already listen? That's great. In that case, check out our Patreon page and become a patron. Subscriptions start at a measly $5 a month. And after three months, you get some really cool merchandise. You can find all the information at patreon.com forward slash Dispatches from the Forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do it through PayPal. Dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com is my PayPal address and also how to contact me if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. You can also check out our merch store at cafepress.com forward slash Dispatches from the Forest and get some Dispatches from the Forest merchandise. Lots of options there. I feel confident you're going to find something you like. For additional content, check out Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast, whole or in part, without express written permission. Do not make me unleash the rabbit otters.